All right, so this, this um, chapter of John is in the time frame of the Feast of the Tabernacles. So there are three major feasts from the Old Testament where people were called to do a pilgrimage to go to Jerusalem. And those three feasts were the Passover, Pentecost, which was 50 days after that, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, or the ingathering. Okay, so tabernacles, you think of tents, like in the, the tabernacle, the idea of, of the, before there was the temple, there was the tabernacle, and it was a tent that was mobile, where the worship of God was performed. But the idea is that the people themselves dwelt in booths or tents. And it's at the end of the harvest season, so it's also sometimes in the scripture called the Feast of the Ingathering. And so it's this place, this idea of a time of harvest. Now, the theme of the Feast of the Tabernacles is going to be pointed to when we get to the section on the Holy Spirit. And that's the idea that the Holy Spirit will be sent out. There will be a causing of many conversions and a giving of great power in the New Covenant era after the Christ is glorified, sits at the right hand of the Father. He, at Pentecost, sends forth the Holy Spirit, and that is uh, what we, we see happening. But the idea of the gathering in of people um, this is supposed to be both something pointed to in terms of the, the Holy Spirit's work that gets talked about in this chapter, but also it's a little bit ironic because you have all these people that are supposed to be there celebrating the blessings of God being brought in, and you have the great harvester, Jesus Christ, coming, and so many people reject what he is saying. There is this failure to properly gather, this, this failure to properly coalesce around him. So let me remind you a little bit of what we've gone through before. You have the outline on page one. Remember the beginning of chapter 1, um, what we have is this idea of Christ coming into the world, that he is the eternal word. And the whole book of John as an outline is sort of like a tour through the tabernacle. And it's, it starts with this idea that Christ tabernacles amongst us. Okay, So the tabernacle was a symbol for the presence of God with people, with the people of God. Christ comes, and now God is dwelling, he's tabernacling is the verb that's used, in the first chapter, with us. So we have this idea of walking through. So you enter in. The, the tabernacle is built. The world is built. The, the, the presence of God dwells there. And then there's this emphasis on sacrifice that occurs at the end of chapter 1, where Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And then there is this emphasis on the idea of washing for cleansing. And in the tabernacle, there was this big laver, this big pool of water made of bronze. And then there's the table of the showbread, and that's the section we're in now. And this table of the showbread is the idea of the presence of God with his people manifesting the bread. And we think about that with the Lord's Supper now, right? Obviously, there's a connection between the bread, the loaves of bread that were present in the tabernacle that were to be replaced once a week. And we have the idea of the Lord's Supper that occurs on a weekly basis as well. And so there is the presence of God with his people. And we're still there, and so the nourishing work of bread and wine, or the, the, the food and the drink, are emphasized here. Back in John 4, we had Jesus interacting with this Samaritan woman, and he talked about living water. Then, in John 5, there was this discussion of the Sabbath, and the idea of caring and healing. And then, we dealt with, in John 6, you can go to page 2, the outline. We, we dealt with the sign of feeding the 5,000, right? And so there was this nourishment that was given. And then we had Jesus preaching on the fact that he was the bread of life. And now 
we're going to have Jesus give again a discourse in his discussion during the Feast of Tabernacles on the Holy Spirit where he talks about the idea of that living water and the resolution of thirst again. Okay, So this nourishing work of of the Christ is the emphasis, and we're about to end, as we conclude chapter 7, we're about to end that theme there. So what I want you to do is to uh, jump forward with me now to page 3. And there's a little image, by the way, of the, uh, again, there's the tabernacle being laid out. So you can see how that was organized, um, and that's laid out for us at the end of Exodus. So this first section, chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, about disloyalty, cowardice, unbelief, and indecision by those who are in the church, those who are claiming to be believers. Chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Okay, this is also ironic. Why? Because Judea should be the, the heartbeat of the church. Judea is the place that where you see the reforming, the rebuilding of the temple. The temple is there just north of Judea in Jerusalem. And Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Okay, So to have Judah, to have Judea going after him is a betrayal of the church, a betrayal of the holy city, a betrayal of his own tribe. Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Okay, So that, that's an indicator. The law of Moses requires him to go to Jerusalem and to therefore enter into this sort of enemy territory at this tabernacle. He's got three feasts a year. He's got to go into this zone of the people that want to kill him. Verse 3. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you were doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And so they say this, they speak rather boldly about what he ought to do. It's very easy to tell other people to be bold. It's an easy thing. It's an easy thing to tell other people to be bold. But this little last statement, you know, it's good to encourage each other to be bold. But this last statement, verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe him. They are testing him. They're not encouraging him. They're saying, yeah, if you are this, do this. And so... He, Jesus, was avoiding the concentration point of his enemies because they sought to kill him, and that was the place of their strength. And he had a duty to carry out his, his ministry throughout the period of time, awaiting the appointed time of his death. And so he is not to test God by unnecessarily taking risk, and yet he needs to perform duties like going to the temple for, tabernacle, for, for, for the Feast of the Tabernacles. And so we are called to take risks to do what God commands, and we are called to avoid unnecessary risks without some duty. Those are two things that must be held on to. There's no contradiction. There's no tension there. It's simply taking risks without any reason is foolish. Taking risks for duty is wise. And so the Lord Jesus Christ gives us an example of extreme boldness when he has a duty and wise avoidance of risk when there is no duty to be performed that requires a risk. But these brothers, these These men are his biological brothers. Rome would have you believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin. That's a lot. The scriptures plainly teach that Jesus had biological brothers. 
there was a marriage between Joseph and Mary, and it would have been a contradiction of that marriage covenant for them to not have marital relations. Jesus had brothers, and these brothers were used in the providence of God to not believe Jesus, which is supposed to be shocking. And then later on, James, for example, who wrote the book of James, James the Just, James known for looking like a camel because his knees were so beat up from praying on his knees all the time. James, who was the moderator at Acts 15, the council in Jerusalem, who helped to resolve the dispute there between those who thought that circumcision should continue in the church and those who believed rightly that it should not. James was one of these brothers. So you imagine whenever James is doing a Bible study on, on John chapter 7, verse 5, that verse probably stung whenever he read it. Even his brothers did not believe in him. This disloyalty and unbelief of his brothers manifests itself in them pushing him to make a decision to take risk. And they aren't willing to do anything to align with him. They're, they're not putting skin in the game. They don't show any credibility that they're willing to take the risk with him. There's no promises of standing beside him. There's no promise to protect him. They are aware of the fact that people are seeking to kill him. And there's nothing there. There's just a disloyalty. Now, you remember, back in chapter 6, there were all these people gathered around when Jesus gave them food, and they said, let's make him king. They wanted to force him to be king. Jesus repeatedly sloughs off groups of followers that are disloyal, that do not have integrity. He had 5,000 men that wanted to make him king, more than a legion. 5,000 men. And he gets rid of them by preaching hard doctrine to them. And here his brothers want to take him. And you go, you know, maybe, maybe if I have my disciples and my brothers, that's a large enough band that it might scare off some of the, the temple authorities from wanting to arrest me. That's not what he does. He doesn't, he doesn't go, oh, I wish I had the 5,000. I wish I had my brothers. He goes, no, I'm not going to do that. He has a different plan. He's going to use surprise and a small number. I should remind you of Gideon, by the way. Verse 6, then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Okay, now, sometimes people read that and they kind of take it out of context and they think, oh, Jesus is saying he's waiting for God's time, but it's always time for you to repent and try harder and be better, and that's not what he's saying at all. There's nothing about that here. His point is, my time hasn't come. What's his time? The time that the Lord has appointed, that God the Father has appointed for Jesus to go and do this particular action. But these guys don't care. The brothers of Jesus don't care about the specific commandment or the wise choice of time. They're just saying, it's always time. They just do what they want when they want. That's what he's saying. Okay, so he's saying, all right, you want me to go right now? I'm going to wait for the time that the Father has appointed. And the, this is further made plain by the fact that in verse 7, he further rebukes them for not caring about the law of God. The world can't hate you. You feel like this is, like, is going to be like an encouraging verse. Like, the world can't hate you because you're just so cute. Or, the world can't hate you because you're just so great. The world can't hate you. But it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. In other words, they can't hate you because you won't call them to account. You won't preach the law. You won't speak the truth. You flatter them. They can't hate you. 
Because you're a flatterer. They hate me because I tell them the truth. You go up to this feast. Get away from me. Go, go, to the, go to the feast. You want me to go? You go. I'm not yet going up to this feast. For my time has not yet fully come. When he said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. So he waits for them to go. So Christ is doing what God the Father commands him. He is speaking truth to the world, and it results in the world hating Jesus. So a general application to us, the preaching of the law brings hatred against Jesus. We are not greater than our master. We should expect that the preaching of the law will make the world hate us too. But here's the thing. It also brings conviction. It causes men to be weakened in their place and to fall to their knees and to repent. It sometimes takes the dead and causes them to be made alive. As you preach to them their duty and their failures and their need for a Savior and who the Savior is, the result is oftentimes that those who are enemies, those who are a part of the world, leave the world and become a part of the church. When we watch Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist came to prepare the way for him, and Jesus came, and he did all of this work, making enemies, having people ultimately kill him, and then he had prepared the ground so that there was a fast conversion of many thousands when the apostles went out. And this was intentional. He was to be rejected. That was the plan, was for him to be rejected. But there's all this laying of seed of the word, all this leavening of the loaf that he does during his life. He preaches and prepares. Page five. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast. Okay, so we see he separates out from them. Not openly, but as it were in secret. And you might go, is this cowardice? Is Jesus... Is Jesus playing the coward? Is he going to hide amongst the crowds and avoid anybody ever knowing that he's there? Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he's good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. He doesn't go up with a large crowd, like the group he gathered in John 6. He doesn't go up with his brothers, as an addition to his number. He travels with his loyal disciples to the point of danger, and he comes in to a position of surprise. We are called to not put our hope in numbers. Vast <coughs> hosts of armies have been defeated by small numbers. We are not to put our, our trust in strength, the strength of our own arms, pun, either one. We are not to trust in our own skill. We are to trust in God. And if we are to work with others and to trust them, we are called to have credible, covenanted brothers. People who profess the true religion and seek to act in such a way as to show that they are concerned for the truth of God and what he commands. In the scriptures, when you see teaching about armies, when you have men that have moral failures. The army is to discharge them from service because they are not reliable. Jesus enters the point of conflict, taking up position for surprise. 
with a small band of loyal, believing brothers. And yet there's one traitor in his midst. The leaders of the people sought him out. His secret entrance evaded them until he was in a position to embarrass them. He was the talk of the town. He was the object of the wrath of the leaders. And all this talk and all this search made his appearance in the midst of the people all the more stirring. Like this surprise in the middle of the feast. So here we, here we go. Now, verse 14. About the middle of the feast, like Jesus has a good sense of drama. He waits. It's not the first day. It's not the second day. This is a week-long feast. He's like, day four. This is good. We'll come in on day four. This reduces the time for reaction. It gives him enough time to have a powerful presence. And so this coming and appearing in the middle of the feast is a dramatic move. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. The crowd would be at his maximum at this point because anybody who was late, any stragglers, anybody who, who planned poorly or got sick on the way, they would have arrived at this point as well. So, so Jerusalem would be filled and you'd have hundreds of thousands of men and families arriving in Jerusalem at this time to cause the city to swell. And there would be many, many booths or or tents that would be set up around the city. So you have the city is swelling, and also there is this filling of the space around it with all of these tents. So it's quite the show. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? So he starts to teach, and he doesn't immediately go into whatever the conflict was that was remaining. Right? He doesn't bring up the Sabbath conflict that existed earlier. He doesn't immediately bring up the fact that they're searching for him to kill him. He just starts to teach. And the teaching he's giving is learned teaching. And he's expositing the scriptures and explaining things and explaining the literature and explaining the grammar, explaining what it means, giving insights, drawing out doctrine, giving applications. And the people marvel because they go, how does he know so much? I mean, he didn't, he didn't go to seminary. He doesn't, have, he doesn't have a degree. There's no, he doesn't even have a baccalaureate, much less a master's degree or a doctorate. Camillo didn't teach this guy. Who, who taught this guy? So Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. The, the church does not depend, and Christ did not depend, upon an accredited system of schools to provide its teachers. It provides, it relies upon God to provide teachers in the church through the teaching of the word of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to raise men up and give them gifting and qualification. My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. And so, so, so often, we want to learn things from the scriptures and then not apply any of the things we've been taught. It's hard. Learning things, I, I, I'd, like to know, I'd like to know some things, and if I could just be left alone afterwards, that would be delightful. Thank you very much. I will consider whether or not I want to apply that thing or not. But who is the one that speaks? It is God who speaks in the scriptures. And when he commands us to jump, we ought to jump. And so, if our concern is to realize, if we say the, the word of God 
is the bread of life. The word of God is the living water. Then, and we want to get more of it. There's a life hack here in chapter 7, verse 17. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So we gain discernment when we seek to take what God has taught us and to apply it. He causes us to grow in discernment more. As you learn, as you apply, God increases the rate at which you learn. This is the general tendency of things. Verse 18. For he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And no unrighteousness is in him. But when you, when you seek to know God and you seek to show God's glory by doing what he commands, you are seeking the glory of the one who sent you, the one who commands you, who commissions you in the Great Commission and in the Dominion Mandate. Now Christ is the only one who consistently seeks the glory of the Father, the only human to ever do so. And there is no unrighteousness in him. None. There is not a smidge of it. There is no island of corruption. There is nothing there. Not an evil desire. Not a wicked thought. No unbelief. No darkness. In him is light. Did not Moses give you the law? And here he is. He's doing the very thing that he told his brothers about. They hate me because I teach them the law and that they're breakers of it. And here he goes. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Okay, so I'm teaching you this doctrine, the law of Moses. I'm teaching you that you're breakers of it. And in fact, your desire to kill me is breaking that law. Because you have no just cause. But also, there's an irony here. Jesus is saying, why do you seek to kill me? Well, the ultimate answer is, God has decreed that you will kill me so that I can pay for your sins. They seek to kill him because they're evil and they seek to kill him because there's a solution to evil there. And so there's this shocking reality that they break the law killing him so that there can be a payment for sin. And they don't know what they're doing when they do it. And many of those involved would not repent, would not be saved, but many would. Now, one of the things also that happens in the Feast of the Tabernacles, right? He's in the middle of that feast. One of the things that happens in this is there are 70 bulls that are sacrificed. These 70 bulls, the number 70, you need to hold on to that number. The first time the number 70 ever appears in the scriptures is the list of all the nations that come descending from Noah. You have 70 nations that make up the whole race of man. You then end up with 70 descendants of Jacob that make their way into Egypt to go into slavery. And then in Exodus 24, you have 70 elders that rule the people that have gone from 70 patriarchs of households to now you have over 600,000 men who are heads of house by the time you have the Exodus, 215 years after going to Egypt. And so their numbers grew mightily. And this number 70 gets brought up again 
in terms of the idea of the Sanhedrin, the, the court that judges Jesus is the court of the 70. Those are the men that condemn him to death. Those are the men that give him an unjust trial. And then Christ has 70 disciples that are supposed to be a replacement of that court as we come into the New Covenant era. And the idea is that those are the apostles to the nations. They go out to the nations. So the 70 nations are saved by these teachers, these 70 teachers going out to them. And the 70 bulls have to do with sacrifice for the 70 nations. And that this feast is the feast of the tabernacles, the booths, where you go into the field and you do the work of harvest and you pull in the harvest. And what is the harvest that's ultimately pointed to in the Feast of Tabernacles? It is the harvest of the nations that they would be brought in, that the world might be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. So these 70 sacrifices of bulls are sacrifices for the sins that point to the 70 nations and the idea that there would be a pulling in and a saving by the going out of the word. So there's this preaching showing that the need of salvation not only for the 70 nations, but for the nation of the Jews. And so Christ is seeking to glorify the Father, and he is speaking on the authority of the Father. Go to page 6, verse 20. The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? And Jesus had said that they are seeking to kill him. Now, he remembers what had been going on. And many of them probably remember it as well, but there's this tendency when you are in a, a big public relations battle for there to be an effort by the wicked to engage in the big lie. Right? The big lie is the propaganda tool of taking things that are obvious, that everybody knows, and just saying, that's not true. <coughs> or coming out and coming up with something that everybody knows is false. Just, oh, well, such and such happened. And he goes, that's, that's a pretty big deal. I don't know. Like, I don't think that happened. No, it did. And so you just start to assert things that have not happened, or you start to deny things that everybody knows happened. And that's the big lie. So this big lie is nobody's seeking to kill Jesus. This is a bold lie. And then, this idea that you're crazy, right, for trying to make us believe that. Who's seeking to kill you? This is a, a blame shifting. You're the one who's wrong. You're a liar. So, this is a common political tactic in our day to attack people without answering something, right? Jesus brought up, you're trying to kill me. And the response is, nobody's trying to kill you. You have a demon, this is attacking without answering. This is just blow past it. And this was made famous in American politics by Bill Clinton. That's what his advisor said when the Monica Lewinsky scandal was going on. You just move past that and you attack. And also, if you could bomb some people in Yugoslavia, that would be helpful. So Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. The work he's talking about goes back earlier to chapter 5 with the healing of the guy at the pool at Bethesda that was in the, the temple. Okay, So he's talking to the people. These people would have witnessed that. It was at a different feast that occurred. And so many of these people would be aware of what had happened there. So he's reminding them of big landmark events. Yeah, they, they are trying to kill me. Do you remember 
when I you know, healed that guy that had been lame for 38 years, and, and then they were trying to kill me because they thought I was breaking the Sabbath. You remember that? Was that a, no? Nobody remember that? So I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So he moves on. He says, yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, you did. People were trying to kill me. And yes, you remember, it was when I healed that guy. And by the way, we were arguing about the Sabbath, and here's a new argument for you. Is this what he does? He just he reminds them there's a conflict. He deepens the conflict, and he gives a new argument for the conflict. He's doubling down on the conflict. He's intensifying the conflict. He's reengaging in the conflict and poking them again. Right? This is like coming up real fast and jabbing in the nose and then smiling. Right? That is what's happening here. The Lord Jesus Christ is reengaging in the fight. This is a surprise attack in the public relations war, in the spiritual war, to win the hearts of the people, to teach them the truth. And he's using this argument that healing on the Sabbath is a work of mercy that is always allowed. It was allowed from the time of Moses. It was never forbidden on the Sabbath. And let me show you another argument why that's true. Circumcision is a cutting away of skin, and it's a symbol for life. And the life that comes by the seed that was promised, the Messiah. And if I heal a person, I'm giving them some of the reality of life. Are you saying on the Sabbath we can give the sign, but I can't give the reality? And so he's making an argument from the lesser to the greater, saying, if it's lawful to circumcise, it's lawful to heal. Verse 23, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance but judge with righteous judgment. Jesus rebukes these people for their susceptibility to propaganda. And Christian, it is your job to not be susceptible to propaganda. We are not to be a manipulable people. We are to be steadfast. We are to be a people who, when others rush us to action, we say, Lawful process, biblical conflict, slowness to judge, readiness to listen. And when people present arguments, we are to consider their source of authority. You're telling me I have a duty as an individual to do a thing? Where does it say that in the scripture? You want my household to run a certain way? Where does it say to do that in the scripture? You would like our church to teach a doctrine or have some form of worship or give some order of government? Where does it teach that in the scripture? You would like the magistrate to exercise coercive power. Where does it teach that in the scripture? And when people present arguments from the scripture, we are to be careful to not just hear things that are flowery that sound good. But we are to say, does the scripture say that explicitly? Okay, if not, then let's judge the argument. Does it follow one of the three valid forms of immediate inference? Or does it follow one of the 24 valid frames of syllogistic inference? And if you don't know what those are, how do you know? If you don't know what immediate inference is and you don't know what syllogistic inference is, how do you know when someone has given you a right argument? Do you just feel it out? You're just kind of like, that one, 
makes me tingle in my left ear. And the argument must be good. I like the sound of that argument. It one, that one must be right. So the idea, I think, I'm pretty sure, I have some logic textbooks over there. Anybody wants some? There's also some recordings of a logic text, logic class I gave. Let me know if you want them. So we're supposed to judge arguments and be not susceptible to propaganda. Process, source of authority, right argumentation. These are the things. Now, verse 25. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? Look at the response. The immediate response of some of the Jews was the big lie. We're not trying to kill you. You've got a demon. Jesus explains some, and then some people tend to go, I think that is the guy that they were trying to kill. Right? You can, you can't, they can't fool everybody all the time. You are able to make some people to wake up. The Lord causes some people's eyes to see. He makes the scales drop from some people's eyes. Some of them from Jerusalem said, isn't this the guy that they're seeking to kill? Well, look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. He is undermining their authority and their regime by preaching in their midst. And this surprise action made it so that it was difficult for them because by the time they realize he's preaching in the middle of their territory, he already has a crowd around him that is astounded by what he's saying. And they would bring ridicule on themselves and question on themselves if they arrested him in the midst of the people in the temple. And as a result, their failure to do that makes their hypocrisy all the more obvious. Why aren't they arresting him? He's, he's right there. You're the wanted poster. That's him. Okay. He's right there. Why not arrest the guy? And so the failure to arrest him results in an undermining of the authority of the rulers. And they start to wonder. The people start to go, maybe they're not arresting him because he's actually the Christ, like people are saying. But then, here's an interesting thing. You, you, we, we have this like fairy tale version of the charge, right? We all want this. We all, we don't, none of us want the grind. I don't want the grind. I don't want to always have to keep fighting for the truth. What I want is to fight for a little bit, to have a glorious victory, get all the prizes, and for everybody to say I'm awesome. Is that what you want? I would, does that sound like a great thing? You're like, a little bit of a fight, fantastic. Life's not boring that way. Immediate victory afterward, all the prizes, all the praise. That'd be delightful. Let's do this. That is not what happens. And that desire for the immediate conquest is the vice that Samson brought to the table. Samson would defeat his enemies. He would kill them with the jawbone of a donkey. He would slaughter them, and then he'd go luxuriate. The conqueror mentality that we want to win and then not have to work anymore is not what the Lord Jesus Christ exemplifies. He exemplifies for us the diligent man. He works, gets small gains, and works some more. Gets more small gains, works some more. Gets more small gains, works some more. The diligence of the Lord Jesus Christ to be ready in season and out of season. What happens is he overcomes one lie, oh, you have a demon, nobody's trying to kill you. All these people go, you know, I'm pretty sure this is the guy they were trying to kill. And then it moves to, is he the Christ? And you go, hope, hope, hope. 
And they go, however, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. This isn't even a right argument. Okay? This is, like, you might be like, oh, I, I get it. Like, they think they know where he's from, and, and, and they actually don't know where he's from. So the fact that they think they know where he's from is really them just not really knowing where he's from. And so, ha, huh, there's a fulfillment of prophecy. No, that's not it. Actually, there's a very specific prophecy that he would come from Bethlehem. These people are just making stuff up. This is just bad doctrine. You run into this in churches all the time. People are like, oh, that can't be true because of false doctrine. You talk to people and they go, this true thing can't be true because of this false thing I believe. And that's one of the problems you run into. So not only do you have to deal with right reasoning, but you also have to deal with addressing the wrong authority. So these people are reasoning rightly. right? That's a, this is a valid argument. If the Christ is a person that nobody will know the origin of, and we know the origin of this guy, then he can't be the Christ. Right? That's a valid argument. The problem is the premises are false. And so that actually comes up right afterwards. What happens is, you find, verse 28, Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, actually it's going to be further down, later on people are going to bring up the Bethlehem thing. So it's going to come up later. So we come here, verse 28, Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, you both know me and you know where I'm from. And I have come, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these, which this man has done? Okay, so he is, he is removing objections. Right? He doesn't explain the Bethlehem argument right now. But what he does say, he addresses the lie that's being believed, right? So he goes to the next conflict, which is their unbelief. And he says, now you know where I'm from. I've come from the Father. And you don't know the Father. And you should know the Father. I know him, for I'm from him, and he sent me. So he's telling them to listen to him, that they might know the Father. Verse 30, therefore they sought to take him but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So here he is taking risk, being present in the midst of these people and in the midst of them where he could be easily arrested, easily grabbed, and there's a failure to act. So often decisive action, surprise, initiative can shock the enemies of the people of God into inaction. In military jargon, people talk about the OODA loop. Observe, orient, decide, act. You can't decide what you should do until you've observed the situation and you've oriented yourself in terms of what your objectives are, what's available, what can happen, what the risks are. And so you decide on some sort of course of action. And then you act. You have to actually execute the action. This surprise coming up in the middle of the feast in the middle of their presence creates a situation where it's difficult for action to occur because there's things to consider. There's pros and minuses. There's, there's cons, pros and cons. There's pluses and minuses to be considered. And so the making of decisions in the midst of this time is a difficult thing as they realize there's a change in the strategic situation. And the Lord blesses it and causes them to not be able to take him because his hour had not come. 
You are as safe in the midst of your enemies as you are on your bed at night. The Lord determines your time. He controls what happens. He causes narrow misses. He causes wide misses. And he causes the enemy not to shoot. He does all of these things. So we are called to trust the Lord, to take risks when we have a duty, knowing that he is the one who grants victory. Verse 31, And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? So before they started to go, Wait, this is the guy that they're trying to kill. They're starting to not believe the big lie. And then they start to address more important questions, false doctrines that are in their own head already. Oh, we're not supposed to know where the Christ comes from. Jesus addresses that. Yeah, you do. You know where he comes from. He comes from the Father, for one thing. And then he says, in addition to that, there's this example of the failure to take. The boldness of Jesus and the cowardice of his enemies increases the thoughts that these people have in his favor and against his enemies. And then lastly, they start to wonder. They have doubts against their doubts. Is it possible that the Christ would have more signs than this guy has? Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Okay, so now they've decided that they've observed the situation, they've oriented themselves, they've come to a decision, and they've initiated the execution of the action. We're going to arrest this guy. Verse 33. Then Jesus said, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Okay, so these guys come, they hear him. This assertion is a confusing assertion. So this sounds a little bit like, you don't need to arrest me, I'm not going to be here very long, and then I'm going to go away. What he's actually saying is, you're not going to arrest me yet. When you do arrest me and kill me, then I will go to the Father, I will sit at his right hand, and you won't be able to touch me there, but I will be able to harass you. Now, in strategic considerations, if you can harass your enemy and your enemy can't harass you, which side do you think tends to win? Verse 35, Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Jews and teach the Greeks? So there's a bunch of (coughs) Greek-speaking Jews that are all over the Roman Empire. Is he saying he's going to leave Jerusalem and leave the the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin, the 70, and he's going to go out there and teach those Jews? What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So the interesting thing here, success increases opposition. It also increases confusion. But it also increases clarity and morale for some, for those who are part of the cause and know what's going on. There's both a gathering and a stirring up that occurs. There's a gathering and a stirring up that occurs. There's the chaos. He's gathering strength, and he's creating chaos. And this is the momentum that can occur as you achieve things. Verse 37. 
We get to the promise. So now, he's already talked about how he's going to go in the ascension and not be able to be reached. Verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Okay, so he's, he's reminding us of what he's already taught us. If you take in the word, you're taking in the bread of life. And if you believe it, then you are consuming it, you're eating it, and it gives life. If you take in the word, you're taking in the living water. And if you believe it, it will result in living water flowing out of you. What does that mean? That means you're going to give the word, you're going to give truth to other people. You're going to nourish other people. Out of the heart of the wise will come wise words. You will be able to give the fruit to other people of wisdom. Verse 39, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Notice this explains the stuff that we were reading in chapter 6. In chapter 6 we were taught that Jesus is the one who gives that living water, and he's the one who causes that living water to flow. And now we're being told that this is by the operation of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent by Christ, he is the vicar or representative of Christ, and so Christ does it through the Holy Spirit. Now, there's also this statement that this is about the Holy Spirit who hadn't been sent yet. Does that mean that nobody could believe yet? Well, no. Why? Because in one sense, the Holy Spirit had already been sent. And how is that? Even in the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit was converting people and sanctifying people and indwelling people, and giving, gifting, and causing that gifting to be effective. The New Covenant has all of those things to a greater degree. The difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is not that the Old Covenant lacked all of those things, and the New Covenant has all of those things. Nobody would ever be converted in the Old Covenant. There would be no David or Moses or Abraham. There would be no believing person in the Old Covenant had it not been for the Holy Spirit converting them and opening their eyes. None of them would have ever done any good works had it not been for the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. None of them would have remembered the word of God had it not been for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. None of them would have ever done useful things had it not been for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And nobody would have accomplished anything if it hadn't been for the effectuating of utility of those good works by the Holy Spirit. The issue is, all those good works in the Old Covenant are nothing compared to the greatness of the good works of the spread of the truth, of the increase of sanctification, of the presence of the word of God in his people in the new covenant. The sending of the Holy Spirit is the giving of the blessings of the new covenant. And so what we will see is this dramatic increase of the number of people that are converted, the depth of their sanctification, the extent of their gifting, the effect of that gifting, and we are going to see that on a worldwide scale. The ministry of the New Covenant is so much more powerful than that of the Old Covenant. And that's what's being talked about here. So he's saying, when I'm ascended, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I will die. I will be buried. I will be resurrected. I will be ascended. I will be enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And I will send the Spirit, and you will conquer the world. Verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. 
And others said, this is the Christ. Do you see the step-by-step progress of the advance of the belief of these people? There was this initial, well, wait a second, these are the guys, they were trying to kill him. They, they rejected the big lie. Then they started to go, well, I don't know, it seems like maybe he couldn't be the Christ because we know where he's from. And then Jesus addresses that and removes that false doctrine. And then they start to go, is the Christ going to have more signs than this? And then they start to go, this guy's the prophet that Moses prophesied about. This guy's the Christ. Like there's this progress. It's step by step, step by step. The progress that occurs, the leaven of the gospel, the leaven of the doctrine, the advance of the doctrine. But some said, will Christ come out of Galilee? Not all of them. There's still opposition. Will Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So notice the error that was, we're not going to know, has now turned into a different objection, right? It's so funny. You often get objections from both sides, right? You go, we're not going to know where he's from. And then we're going to know precisely where he's from. And it's not where he came from. You see the, the hilarity of the oppositeness of these two objections? We're going to know precisely where he's from. He's not from there. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David, from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? And so there was a division among the people because of him. And some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Right? So this division, this confusion, the lack of unity there... Jesus has created discord and disunity. He started a DEI initiative. There's diversity all over the place, and nobody knows what to do. That's what he's done here. He has made it so that there's discord inside of this group, and so they're incapable of taking action. They don't lay hands on him because they're indecisive, because they don't have unity. Verse 45, Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why have you not brought him? And one of the glories of having a separation of powers and having different branches of government and having different people who have to consider things is the fact that sometimes tyranny gets slowed down because there's discord inside of a government. The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? Why didn't you arrest him? Why didn't you carry out the warrant that we issued? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. We started to doubt the validity of the warrant we started to wonder whether it was lawful and just to arrest this guy. Verse 47. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? Now look, you're deceived. All of us educated people don't think that this guy is the Christ. What's wrong with you? But this crowd, this rabble, that does not know the law is accursed. They don't know the law. Why are they all gathered there for the Feast of Tabernacles? Pretty, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure they are aware of the law to some extent. That's why they're gathered for the Feast of Tabernacles. Right? This slander and overreach, all the learned people agree, and only these ridiculous, unlearned people wouldn't agree. Verse 50, Nicodemus. Oh, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Nicodemus is a part of the ruling class. He's on the Sanhedrin. He's one of the 70. He's like a senator that's the chairman of some sort of powerful committee. Nicodemus, 
he who came to Jesus by night, remember that in chapter 3, being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Notice what Nicodemus did. Nicodemus stood up and he immediately disproves the claim that none of the rulers are concerned about this. Secondly, he also shows that he knows the law better than these guys that were like, these people don't know the law, they're cursed. And Nicodemus says, that's interesting. Does our law judge a matter before it hears it? It's a rhetorical question. Anybody with the most basic training in the law would know the answer is no. Our law does not judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing. They answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Okay, the total hypocrisy. And this is what you run into. Those that are trying to protect their power base, this is what you run into. They make an argument. These people don't know the law. And none of the rulers agree with them. A guy stands up and says, I'm a ruler, and the law teaches different from what you're saying. And their response is to not own it, not repent, not apologize. The response is to change the subject with another attack. Are you also from Galilee? Notice the abusive ad hominem. Galileans can't be right. Change the subject. This is propaganda. It's an invalid argument. And you need to know that to avoid being manipulated. Because the enemies of Jesus use propaganda, and they seek to manipulate with bad arguments, and they distract. Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. That's another bad argument. Just because no prophet had come from Galilee doesn't mean a prophet couldn't come from Galilee. There's no place in the scripture that says prophets can only come from such and such places. And everyone went to his own house. Now, at the same time, in trying to save face, they did not call for a vote to try to go arrest Jesus again. They try to save face. They throw dust in the air. They try to shove Nicodemus, make him look bad. They're trying to save face. Nicodemus's resistance against this tyrannical action and the bad arguments still results in an effective prevention of the Sanhedrin from arresting Jesus. You look at this and you go, ah, oh, Nicodemus lost the argument. Nicodemus won. Because they adjourned and they went home. Spiritual battle against unbelief is a grind. It requires fight after fight after fight, and it has limited victories, but they stack up. There is progress. So I encourage you to not grow weary. The Lord is with us. He's at the right hand of the Father. He grants success. He has given us the Holy Spirit. We will be effective. We cannot lose. It is impossible for you to do anything but win. And we have a promise of that. He is with us. So do what he commands. Believe what he says. And enjoy watching the fruit grow. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Cordova. Thank you for your teaching, Elder Reese. Uh, quick question regarding the life pact in chapter 7, verse. Is it just 17 or is it 17? Yeah, 17. Yeah, verse 17. As, as you seek to do what God commands, 
it helps you to further grow in knowing what he has revealed. Yeah. Thank you.